1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
4: The next chapter.
5: It deals with the illusion of the American dream.
4: That's when you really become a writer.
5: You know, our family motto
6: is probably we move. Home is, is never going to be the place that you left it.
2: The next chapter. On
6: CBC Radio 1. And
2: Sirius XM
3: fall is prize season in the world of books the long lists are being paired to short lists and soon the winners will be crowned for another season and whether you agree with the choices or not prizes raise a book's visibility at a time where editorial pages devoted to books are shrinking later today our contributor ryan b patrick speaks with dion irving about her book the islands it's on the short list for the giller prize and was a finalist for the pen faulkner award for fiction Our first guest, M.G. Vasanji, is a Governor General's Literary Award winner, and he won the Giller Prize twice. This year, M.G. is on the jury for the Atwood Gibson Writers' Trust Fiction Prize, and he and his fellow jurors read 127 books to come up with the final list. So, a shout out to him and all the book prize jurors for their hard work. But M.G. is here today to talk about his own novel, Everything There Is, and that's where we open. It's a fascinating story of a famous physicist and what happens when life collides with science. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Back in the 70s, when M.G. Vasanji first came to Canada, he worked as a nuclear physicist, first at an atomic power plant, and later he taught at university. He left the world of science behind to take up writing full-time, and he became a very successful writer, winning many prizes, including the Giller Prize twice and the Governor General's Literary Award. His new novel is a homecoming of sorts. In everything there is, M.G. Vasanji returns to the world of physics to tell the story of a world-renowned nuclear physicist who climbs to the top of his field. And during this uphill climb, the physicist wrestles with the often incompatible demands of religion, love, and professional guilt and betrayal. M.G. Vasanji joins me now in the Toronto studio. Hello and welcome back to the next chapter. Thank you. I was a little scared to read this book uh, out of the gate because of the physics content I was like, you know, I got a 61 in physics, and I think I only got that out of, you know, my teacher was like, I don't want to see this guy again next semester. So I don't even know if I really passed it. But um, you really use it in a metaphorical sense, and it doesn't, it's not the entire novel at all, but it, it really creates this incredible world. This physicist in your novel is a fictionalized version of a famous physicist, Abdus Salam, who was born in pre-partition India and was the first Muslim ever to win the Nobel Prize. When did you realize that his life could be turned into a novel?
4: Well, back in 2015, uh, we had a small gathering in my home in Toronto, and uh, I brought up the subject of Abdul Salam. I said, you know, the guy was at the top of his field. And at that level, most physicists are not religious. They don't believe in God they don't think God is necessary because you can explain the universe, you know, in, mm. with their equations, at least in principles. And I wonder how did he live with, you know, was both religious and at the same time uh, one of the brilliant minds in physics uh, of the 20th century. And all his colleagues, you know, all these people he worked with, Feynman, Gellman uh, Weinberg, uh, even Einstein, uh, if you look at Stephen Hawking's uh, writings, God is doesn't come into it. It's not necessary. All the people keep asking them. And they, they mm. say, but, you know, we don't need him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I wondered how a man it could be a woman. In this case, it was a man. Uh, how he managed, what kind of life would he have had? And, of course, I wanted to write a novel and not uh, a life of Abdusalaam. You know, I wanted to write my interpretation it was. It's a novel inspired by, by that life and that uh, conundrum. You know, physics at a high level, not just screws and nuts and bolts,
2: but you
4: know, abstract, and a belief in a god. To not only just to believe in god, but to a god to whom you bow and pray. You know, I mean, that, that's like a, a real problem. At least it was for me. You know, so I thought it would be a good idea.
3: Well, let's take it to you. Just We should back up and ask you about your life before you wrote fiction full-time. You were considering a choice of career, and what drew you to physics to begin with and, and, and nuclear physics?
4: Well, in school, you know, it was kind of all British-type school and also Indian kind of values, in which all the brightest, not all, but most of the brightest kids did science, did physics and math. And then you, you sort of know, gave a note to chemistry. Biology, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I was good at math and physics. I enjoyed doing that. I, I enjoyed uh, doing the problems, you know. It seemed like an automatic choice to go into physics, and I always thought I wouldn't do physics but go and teach. And, but, you know, life had its own ideas.
3: Right, then the not-so-automatic choice of uh, fiction writing came up.
4: Yeah, although, you know, I also enjoyed uh, the, what we call the English composition periods in school. Mm-hmm. Every week we had to write one composition. And I enjoyed it. I think I was one of two, two people in our class who always enjoyed those. In fact, one of my essays, my, my English teacher was from India. I took with him, you know, to Zambia. <laughs> so, you know. so I did enjoy writing. But, but to become a writer professionally was unthinkable in those yeah. times and in that culture.
3: My father was a, an English teacher, and uh, you know, a, becoming a writer was always his dream. So, I, talking to you right now, I feel like my father would have been, um, you know, quite quite fascinated by this in, in this whole uh, this whole conversation and and this book for that matter, and uh, you know, the content also is you know, it's it's his world. A Muslim growing up, and uh, Nurul Islam is your protagonist. And he exhibits his brilliance early. At at six years old, he's mastered the Quran by heart. He's a hafiz, as we say. So how how do you see that gift or, for matter, any gift uh, of anyone who is a prodigy, a child prodigy?
4: Well, it's just a gift. Some some children are endowed, especially in some disciplines, and for him— Mathematics was his his forte, you know, and he he was just gifted. In in real life, Abdul Salam was, of course, coached and so on by his father and, you know, groomed to become what he became. But you cannot coach a genius, you know. I mean, it's it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Uh, He just was, you know, what he was. At age 20, he uh, proved, gave a different solution to uh, an arithmetical problem, which... Had been solved by another genius from India, Ramanujan. You know, mm. so it uh, it just was he just was he was fortunate, in the sense that just at the time of the partition of India, when there was bloodshed all around, he got a scholarship to go to Cambridge, and then life took its own turn. He worked with the best minds in physics at Cambridge, and you know he was. Uh, yeah, given a job at the Imperial College and, you know, given a uh, scholarship to go to uh, Princeton and so on. He, he, he just, everyone knew this is this guy is it, you know.
3: Mm. Uh, he's a, a devout Muslim, Nural Islam, and he's part of the Shirazi sect. I had to look up if that was an actual sect. Can you tell people about that?
4: But there were some problems with dealing with real life. Now, he was from the what's called the Ahmadiyya sect, mm-hmm. the Qadianis. Uh, who now by an act of parliament in Pakistan are considered non-Muslims.
3: Right. They are in the... So he belong to
4: that uh, very minority sect. Uh, but he was devout. And, you know, if you look up their literature, quite a few taxi drivers in fact in Toronto are from that sect. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you find out. But uh, he, he was from that sect and devout and he was uh, knew the Quran and he knew the Hadith and wanted to translate one and so on. It's just... I don't know if that was the reason. In my book, my character is against putting his signature on the nuclear weapon. He understands the argument for it, the deterrence argument, but he will not do it. In real life, it depends on whom you talk to. You know, if you talk to certain people, they'll say, of course he was, he participated, uh, put his name to the nuclear weapon because they think that's the patriotic thing to do, and he must have been a patriot. And there are others who say he didn't. So I searched the literature, I couldn't find a single one answer. Mm. But, it, but I I was producing a fictional character, for me, reflecting my values. He, he wouldn't put
3: his name on that bomb. You, know? you said earlier when we were chatting that, um, you know, physicists who operate at this high level they have no need for God. That's what attracted you to this uh, this character based on Abdul uh, Abdul Salam. Is that fact right? He is no problem reconciling the science of physics with his belief in god yes. which is interesting It's not what you usually see neural your protagonist when he's asked to explain his uh, his connection and he's asked often um, what does he think about this uh, contradictory world view
4: he says uh, that it's two different ways of looking at the universe you know and they need need not talk to each other and uh, i guess uh, maybe that's the best answer you know because uh, even people who are devout cannot really explain the devotion. And people, well, I guess people who are agnostic or atheist have some trivial answers, you know, why are there wars and, you know, this and that. Mm. But there's, you know, it's just a matter of your own beliefs. He just did his prayers and, you know, talked to God and so on. Sort of, you know, sometimes took some liberties and then uh, he, he did his physics and for them, and for me, when I think about a character like him, for him, working with physics is his religion. That's he's like mystic. Mm. He's completely absorbed in it. And uh, then there's this other world where he does his pays his dues because that's how he was brought up. A lot of people have beliefs because they were brought up that way. You
3: know? mm. What is the what is mm. the case with you? Do you connect with uh, neural in the sense that you also believe there's no conflict between these two? belief systems, physics, and, and religion?
4: Well, I think it's a matter of uh, choice whether you want both. At some point, I, I, I picked reason, science, mm. because of my own personal uh, experiences from East Africa to, to the U.S. at a very vibrant, very you know, kind of exciting time mm. of uh, discovery. And everything you discovered, you discovered on your own. So in a way, it was like doing physics, where you, it's your own world, you're discovering it. So I, I didn't think, see the need for uh, bowing and scraping you know, to the one and only, as they say.
3: Mm. So Nural grows up in a, a pious home, um, very devout to the one and only. And, and what does that uh, devotion do for him as he moves his way through life?
4: He doesn't let it touch him, because he was so much absorbed in, 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 science, in physics and in mathematics. I think there are periods, if you look at it, you know, you get different kind of uh, somehow views. He he indulged in uh, whiskey, I think some people will say, for a short period in his life, or sometimes he would uh, indulge in sausage roll. Mm. (laughs) But basically his belief was, and then at the time of the partition, this is Nurul, Nurul Islam, my character, when he hears about the bloodshed, he for a few months he stops believing. But then he comes back to it because you know the way you are brought up in childhood, that guilt. You know, I think a lot of Catholics have that. They cannot completely let go. Hmm.
3: I uh, I learned something that I I suspect many people will learn as they read this book that the physics in that world is a hotbed of this competition and jealousy and backstabbing. It's, uh, you know, you, you read this book and you're like, well, this is, you know, real housewives would pale in comparison to the the infighting in this world. Can you tell us about that? That's based in well, reality. Well, in this
4: case, generally physicists are not like that and not to the extent that biologists are because in biology, you're looking for antiviral, you know, medicines and you're looking at, you know, what's troubling the world, you know, physically and then they, there's a lot of infighting and a lot of competition, and they go to courts and so on. In physics, I think it's just what you do it stands out for itself. But in this case, when I was doing my research on Abdul Salam, the real physicist, I discovered that there was one guy in England whose whole life ambition became, whose life purpose became, to attack Abdul Salam. He said he's a fraud and he's a you know populist and he's lying and so on. And I thought, uh, and also there was another physicist uh, in uh, Holland, I think, who seemed, to, at least to my view, to make it a point to sort of ignore Abdul Salam. He would put him in a footnote, you know. Whereas uh, his, the guy who also did the discovery with him, he was called Stephen Weinberg, you know, he put his photo <laughs> on a page. Mm. So I thought that there's, you know, there's thing going on about Abdul Salam. And you have to remember, he was, uh, he was the only brown guy sometimes in the world, kind of uh, hall. Mm. And he was very gregarious and he was not kind of put down by anybody because he was a genius. You cannot put down a genius. Uh, so he must have met some a few enemies like that.
3: Uh, Nora lives a what you would call a, a contained domestic life. He has this arranged marriage with his wife, Sakina Begum, and uh, she was raised to cater to all aspects of, of, of his life. But then he falls in love with somebody else. What happens there?
4: This, this episode I borrowed from the real life. Salam only the fact that he married. He married a, a student he met at a conference, maybe a peace conference or something like that, in England. And that woman, John something, I forget her name, became a famous biologist, in fact, at Cambridge. I, I just had him, he went to Harvard because Salam did go to Harvard. I, the rest is fiction. Uh, his, his stint at MIT... But uh, there, Nurul Islam meets a sort of mature graduate student at Harvard, and he just falls in love in a different way than he is with his wife.
3: This woman is named Hillary, this woman that Nurul yeah. falls in love with. She's also a physicist, as you say. You know, as we talk about love and attraction, where does that fit into the rational worldview? Or, or it doesn't, does it?
4: right? Okay. This is another thing which... Mathematics cannot explain. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And uh, it just happened. It cannot explain. He just uh, is there. But his world is self-contained. And then, of course, he has a wife, you know, him what shall we eat today. And then the kid wants a cricket bat. And so he has to drag himself out of his world and go into the real world, what we call the real world. And then he deals with it. He's a devout father, devoted father. But then this happens, and uh, his love with this, this other woman, he marries her, uh, at least according to the laws of Islam. I think maybe not against the laws of England, but, you know, the, you know, the courts don't have to know about it if both people agree. <laughs> and then his life shifts because uh, Sakina Begum, his Pakistani wife, does something inadvertently, you know, in a kind of grief that kind of almost destroys uh, the physicist, but he, he, he survives, but not unscathed. But I think this this whole episode of A Second wife, it is with the fact that many people who brought up, who marry traditionally, they marry their cousin or, you know, a, a traditional woman. And if you are in your traditional surroundings, you know, it's fine, you know. But when you're outside, then love and marriage and sex and passion take a different dimension. And a lot of men get trapped
3: by that, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me about this discussion of physics and the, the, the you know, the giants in this field is that in some way they were washed up by forty. We are introduced to Nurul Islam at age forty and he's already concerned about something, you know, this kind of thing. Why is that?
4: I think there's a general belief that by the age of forty you've and I think it's true in terms of experience, but I don't know about biologically, that by the age of forty you've somehow passed your prime. And most physicists, are the top physicists, uh, they are recognized by the time they are in graduate school. You know. Some guy, some Weinberg or Einstein or whatever, fine man, sees a, a student and he says, he, he is it, you know, and grooms him. Like Dirac, you know, he's one of the heroes in this uh, book. He got his, I think, Nobel Prize in 20, when he was 26 or 31. Same with Heisenberg, uh, Schrodinger, they were all in their 20s, you know. You find that after the age of thirties, five, forties, they somehow get into more mystical dimensions, you know. Look at the origins of life or, or things like that. You
3: know? you know, maybe it's because I know this about you now, having read a little bit more about your bio, that you love physics and I, I feel like I saw that love uh, throughout the book because I've read nostalgia, I've read Vikram Lal, there was no such, you know yes. connection to to, to, to science. Do you ever think about what would have happened if maybe you'd chosen to continue with that career instead of fiction writing?
4: Well, I would have written, but I would have been depressed because I was not Abdul Salam or Nurul Islam. or I have a friend, in he's in Lahore, also a physicist. He, he taught at the university there. And we discussed wow. it and, and we both realized that we had both entered a dead end of physics, you know. Hmm. And he said, "You know, I'm no Abdul Salam. So I'm not going to pretend. I'll, I'll just teach him. <laughs> so, and then he also, of course, went into politics. I think I would have written, but uh, I would have been depressed. I think, especially I jobs in those days. I might have wound up wound up in some tiny place, <laughs> <laughs> in the idealistic belief that wherever you are it doesn't matter. It matters."
3: And given that uh, you hit your peak at 40, maybe you would have turned to writing anyway in your yes, 40s. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yes, I was writing a little bit. Yeah. But I would, to seriously kind of finish something and you know, say I'm finish one book, I'm going on to the next, that's when you really become a writer. You
3: know? M.G. Vasanji, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you. M.G. Vasanji is the author of Everything There Is. He spoke with me in Toronto. Vincent Lamb took his readers inside the medical world in his first book, Bloodletting and Other Cures. It won the 2006 Giller Prize and went on to a television adaptation. Vincent works in emergency medicine and is now the co-director of a clinic in Toronto that focuses on addiction, specifically opioid use. In his most recent novel, On the Ravine he takes his readers into the center of the opioid crisis and explores the persistent difficulties of drug addiction. Here is Dr. Vincent Lamb answering the Proust questionnaire.
2: Name your favorite writers. Some of my favorite writers
1: are Michael Ondaatje, Jose Saramago, and David Mitchell. All of these are writers whom I find are deeply skilled at creating immersive worlds that I disappear into, and for that reason I love their books.
2: If you could change something about yourself, what would it be?
1: I would really like to understand the plot of my books when I start to write them. Presently, I feel like I understand the feeling of each book when I begin to write, but it actually takes me years of writing to understand the plot, what actually happens to the characters and so that results in a lot of exploration and dead ends and just a lot of work.
2: On what occasions do you lie? I do sometimes
1: lie when eating shared plates at a restaurant and there is that last delicious morsel on the table and everyone says that they're full they don't want it and so I lie too and I refuse that last bite and sometimes This actually gets to the point that the waiter takes it away and no one eats it because no one will abandon their life. They don't really want it.
2: It's very sad. What is your favorite journey? My favorite journey is
1: to Antarctica. I had the good fortune of traveling to Antarctica twice while working as a ship's doctor. And it is just a stunning landscape. It's untouched and one can only be filled with a sense of humbleness and a sense of awe at nature and this planet that we're on in Antarctica.
2: What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? I feel that the most deep
1: misery is to lose someone you love, not having said everything that
2: you wished to say. Where would you like to live?
1: I would like to live in Riverdale, in Toronto. And that also happens to be where I live. Riverdale is a great place because it feels like a little village. It's a place where whenever I walk out of my door and down the street, I run into someone whom I know. And it feels the way I feel the world should be, in that Riverdale, is multicultural, it's curious, it's I think inhabited by people who are in touch with the wider world outside of Riverdale and yet who are really committed to the
2: neighbourhood. What is your greatest regret?
1: Well, when I was a young doctor, I had an opportunity to train in public health. And as part of that, I would have likely done a master's in public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Mind you, the different path that I took was that I began to really devote myself to writing fiction. And so I'm also really grateful for the
2: path that I did take. What is your greatest extravagance?
1: Without a doubt, my greatest extravagance is my collection of bicycles, which might be near a dozen, but I prefer not to commit to an exact number. I was a cyclist from my teenage years. Cycling was and is one of the things which gave me a great deal of pleasure and was also incredibly centering. It's a really important part of my routine, my self-care, my ability to be with myself. And the thing about bicycles is they're very beautiful. They're a simple machine which does incredible things. Um, It translates the movement of the human body into lots of forward motion in a really efficient and wonderful way. So that's a great thing. And the other thing about bicycles is it always feels easy just to add one more. So if you're someone like me, it's always possible to think of a different type of bicycle, which would fulfill a certain kind of travel just a
2: little bit differently. What is your greatest fear?
1: My greatest fear is not living a worthwhile life. So to me, a worthwhile life means understanding what I'm able to do in this world, which I believe makes it a better place.
2: What is your greatest achievement?
1: My greatest achievement is being a husband and a parent. And I almost hesitate to call it an achievement because so many fortunate things have happened which have made this possible and so much of it is out of my control. Yet I feel like the part that I can fulfill as a husband and a parent is the thing that I'm most proud of and the thing which is my greatest
3: achievement. That was Vincent Lamb answering the next chapter's version of The Proust Questionnaire. His most recent novel is On the Ravine. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real.
1: Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other.
3: There's something going on with him. It's like an act. (laughs) I don't trust him. What?
2: You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand?
1: Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC
2: Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hi, I'm Kevin Major. I'm the author of 544-Toe. And you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1.
3: Dion Irving grew up in Toronto and worked at her family's Caribbean grocery store. She heard lots of stories there, and some of those stories formed the DNA for her short story collection, The Islands. The stories follow the lives of Jamaican women who have relocated all over the world. Cultures and characters collide as Dion's cast of women search for home and belonging. Dion lives in Indiana and teaches at the University of Notre Dame, and Ryan B. Patrick caught up with her there. Let's talk about the island. So,
0: the book actually opens with a quote from the classic poet John Donne. Uh, his Meditation 17, where it goes, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. What was it about this quote that uh, you, why did you want to include it? And why does it connect all the stories in the book?
6: Well, I think like the act of immigration often means feeling like you are going out on your own. And yet, there is this idea of sort of immigrant communities all over the world and places in which people find community. But yet at the same time, I think immigration can be a really isolating experience because home can never be the place that you left it um, because places change, right? Hmm. Um, And the new place too can also not be home, right? And so to me, that idea of both being alone and within community and outside of community to me really spoke to that done quote.
0: So Dion, have you ever felt like an island? I mean, like navigating the personal and professional spaces in terms of race, class and gender?
6: Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, my parents immigrated to Canada from Jamaica, uh, and then I immigrated to the US. So I feel like, you know, our family motto is probably we move. But (laughs) at the same time, you know, I think that very much it often feels isolating to be in, in spaces where you are alone, you know, and I have many, many times been, you know, the only Black girl in the classroom or the only Black woman in the the staff meeting, you know, and I think that, too, also presents a kind of isolation. I think, too, when it came to the U.S., having grown up with a really uh, tight-knit Caribbean community in Toronto, it was really hard to be in a place uh, like the U.S., that feels much more diffuse and there weren't you know other people uh who necessarily shared that experience of of what it meant to be caribbean
0: yeah and and the book feels metaphysical like like much like john dunn's work like a lot of themes deal with like the mundane the mundanity of life casual racism stereotypes that black people from the caribbean often have to deal with so tell me about that like why was it something you wanted to write about
6: I think that I just had not seen these stories told necessarily and these stories were very important to me. In some ways it's why it took such a long time to write the book because I think in my heart some way I was like these are stories that are very important to me but I don't know if anyone else wants to read them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the stories both of my parents, the stories of people who, you know, immigrated to Canada in the 60s and 70s, the stories, you know, of second generation and diaspora kids Those are stories that are really powerful, and I wanted to be able to tell them.
0: One of the stories is called Shop Girl, which touches on the expectations of a young girl who grows up in her Jamaican parent's shop, which is located in a strip mall. And it kind of parallels what you went through. You grew up in your parent's shop in Mississauga, Ontario, and much of the book is pulled from your own life in that time. Can can, can you explain what the girl is going through in in that short story?
6: I think it's about being that idea of islands still being caught sort of between two things, right? Both within this community, but also what it means to be Canadian and having to sort of think about those two things simultaneously. I had wanted... To tell the story of that place and that time in my life for such a long time. Um, but it was really, really hard to do because there were so many stories that arose out of that time. You know, it was mm-hmm. such a hub, right, for community in the early 80s in the GTA. And that, you know, people would come from all over to, to come buy groceries for my parents. it was also a chance to see people and to talk and, you know, exchange stories. And I didn't sort of know how to get all of that into one story (laughs) because it's so much, right? So I think when I landed on the second person, uh, that for me was really eye-opening in terms of thinking about how the story can reflect uh, inward and outwardly at the same time.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine in a shop, you're talking to people all day, you're interacting and you're hearing their stories. Do you have any specific like anecdotes or or memories of that time in your life?
6: Oh, absolutely. You know, I always tell people... um, I learned how to butcher from the time I was seven or oh, eight. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> uh, you know, that was just part of the work. But I think also the thing that for me was um, often most poignant was helping people get, get ready to ship barrels back to the islands. Right. Yeah.
0: Can you elaborate on that phenomenon? I, I'm not sure everyone kind of knows that concepts of barrels and sending them back home, so to speak.
6: Yeah. Um, so you have a lot of, you know, um, parents who immigrate and leave the islands going to Canada, to the US, to England. And the the sort of custom is to ship a barrel back to the the children or family that you've left behind on the islands. So it's often a collection of clothes and uh, North American consumer goods, things that would be really expensive on the islands or really hard to get. Mm. And usually a couple of times a a year, people would send barrels back. And there was the process of filling the barrel, right, that you would buy things a little bit at a time until the barrel got full. And then you would ship the barrel back to an
0: island. Yeah. And and that's, such a real thing. I can connect with that with my own family as well. But maybe talk about um, that concept of back home. Like even though you're in the diaspora or whatever, there's always this connotation of of back home. What, What does that mean to you when you hear that phrase?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that phrase is so poignant and so sad because um, kind of like I said before, home is, is never going to be the place that you left it, but maybe the place that you live also doesn't completely feel like home. And what does it mean to be caught between those places? Mm. And that was something I would hear a lot in the shop, you know, that people would talk about sending things home or going home, right? And mm. this idea was like, this place that we live in now is sort of more more transitory, but home is the place that you left. And that that really is your home.
0: So speaking of going back home and, Jamaica and tourism. Um, one of the stories is called All Inclusive. Um, it's about a Jamaican-American woman who begins an affair with a very wealthy, fair-skinned Jamaican poet. And she goes on vacation with him to a resort, and it kind of stirs up a lot of feelings about her, in her about the extractive nature of the actual tourism industry. Why did you decide to write that particular story?
6: I think it's a hard thing, you know. Often when I tell people that my family is from Jamaica, they'll say to me, "Oh, well, I've been to Jamaica." And usually what they mean is that they've been to a resort, right? right? Yeah. And I always want to say, "Well, that's not. Yes, you went to Jamaica, but you didn't go to Jamaica, right?" <laughs> um, and thinking about these two sort of places that that coexist alongside each other and i think for those of us who have you know extended families that live in jamaica or other islands right that you see your life sort of running two in kind of parallel lines alongside theirs you know i mm-hmm. have cousins who are my age, who live in Jamaica, but we've had really, really different lives. And I think in some ways, that's part of that experience of immigration, right? My my parents left because they wanted me to have a different kind of life. yeah. And so I think that there's a real push-pull there, right? Both in terms of the ways that you want to hope that things like tourism impact the economy positively, but also what it means to go to the land of your parents and see people who look like you and could be you, serving and waiting on people all the time and understanding that 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 is their life I think that's there's a real tension and and kind of sadness in that
0: yeah I think there is a lot of sadness in that and I I think when you hear a lot of people that come back from these resorts and it's like oh the people there were so nice and it's like what what, what do you you mean by that (laughs) what were you you expecting Uh, so this book does take us to a lot of places beyond in terms of France Panama uh, London and New York and it kind of looks at the diaspora and moves across different time frames as well. How did you go about um, researching or crafting these different settings and how did they help you tell these stories?
6: Yeah, for me, one of the things I do travel a lot and one of the things that's always striking to me is that I meet Jamaicans everywhere, almost Mm -hmm. everywhere I go. I I meet other people from the Caribbean. And I think, one, that's a testament to sort of that idea of immigration, that that Jamaicans sort of end up all over the world. But also that, like, we've managed to make a home and communities for ourselves in lots of different kinds of places. And I think I wanted to show not just sort of the, the, the typical places, I should say, you know, I think when we think about large population of caribbean immigrants it's toronto it's Mm. new york it's miami it's london you know and i really wanted to show that it is those places but it's also a lot of other places right and you know my mother is is jamaican but grew up in panama you know and there's there really are i mean i got off a plane in iceland once and met a jamaican woman in the airport in iceland of all places you know i mean it really is this idea of you know, Jamaicans will, will make a home for themselves in all all different parts of the world.
0: Yeah. So speaking of that mother-daughter dynamic, there's a thread that weaves in a lot of the stories in this book, Dion. in terms of stories like the weaving, um, some people and the gifts. You essentially talk about some of the ways that parents and children often misunderstand or disappoint each other. Why was that a dynamic that you wanted to examine and explore?
6: I think that, you know, parent-child relationships are are often really fraught, but I think the immigration dynamic adds a real different sort of level to it because mm. you are often growing up in a world and a society and a culture that is so drastically different from the way that your parents grew up that even those of us who have the best relationships with our parents there's going to be tension there in terms of what the larger cultural expectation of growing up in in another kind of country is and what your parents cultural expectation yeah. is there's there's tension there and i think um especially those children of the diaspora it's confusing sometimes right you know everyone else's mother lets them do x y and z why can't i do that also well that's not what we do you know mm-hmm. that's not- the way that we behave, that's not our culture. There are really, really, really pronounced cultural differences in terms of things like child-rearing and food and, and things that, you know, absolutely have a day-to-day impact um, on your life when you're a child of the diaspora. And so I wanted to explore some of those tensions in my stories and look at the places where that adds this kind of level of misunderstanding between the parent and the child because the child can never completely know or understand the sacrifice that their parents made for them right and at the same time the parent can never fully understand the difficulty of what it means to live as a child that's caught between two places
0: so dion you grew up in toronto the toronto area and you lived and studied in many different parts of the world. You lived in the U.S., you know, Florida, Rhode Island. Now you live in Grand Bend, Indiana. So what does home mean to you?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that that in some ways the things that uh, mark home for me have to do with sort of maintaining, you know, these ideas of cultural tradition you know thinking about the kinds of food that that i make and, and how we celebrate holidays um i think it's been really interesting being a mother and having a child who's born in the u.s which is just sort of a puzzle to me but he's <laughs> american although you know it's very funny he has um completely adopted jamaica in a way that he has not oh, canada yeah. nice which is really interesting to me, you know, that he's really into um, Jamaican food. He wants to go to Jamaica and that's been really interesting to me to see. Um, but thinking about how to maintain maintain our culture right in a larger way, you know, what does it mean for us to go to Jamaica? What does it mean for me to have him understand the kinds of foods we eat, the kind of cultural ce- celebrations that we have? I think that's been really important for me and that that idea of sort of Passing it on and thinking about where he connects to his his cultural home.
3: That was Ryan B. Patrick's conversation with Dion Irving. Her short story collection, *The Islands*, is on the shortlist for the 2023 Scotia Bank Giller Prize. <laughs> Creative multi-hyphenate is how her online bio describes Myrian and Joe, our next guest. She does a lot of things, photography, fashion, writing, storytelling, modeling. She's a brand influencer who designs clothes and makeup. It seems like there's very little she doesn't do. Plus, Myrian is a great reader, and that's why she joins me now in Toronto. She's here today to tell us about three of her favorite books. Hello, Myrian, and welcome to the next chapter.
5: Thank you so much for having me. That was a beautiful intro. Thank you. <laughs>
3: it's your life. It's you. It's all about you. Um, I, tell me about your reading. I mean, are you a, a lifelong reader? And
5: Lifelong, yeah.
3: Ha, how do you find time with this variety of things that you keep yourself busy you with? You
5: know, um, I, I think it just comes from the fact that when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer, like before all the things you'd list in that intro, mm. <laughs> I thought I was going to be an author. And I still kind of hold on to that. And I've heard that the best writers are avid readers. And so I've always loved language. I've always loved disappearing in, in a book. and And I think that just being that it's something I've always been really fond of, I've just tried to hold on to it.
3: How do you find the books that you read? Do you browse? Do you go by word of mouth? Are there there certain types of books that you seek out?
5: I think, yeah, I would say it definitely comes from word of mouth or recommendations or, you know, a lot of times too, even things like when I have a favorite author or an author I'm reading and I really enjoy them and I just look for people who do similar work as them and who's kind of associated with them in their same kind of genre – and that's how I'll find my next my next read.
3: All right. Let's talk about the books you brought today. What is the first one on your list?
5: Uh, it's Every Summer After by Carly Fortune.
3: All right. Uh, this is Carly's first novel, mm-hmm. as far as I know. It was a yes. big hit last year. Yes. It paved the way for Carly's sort of ongoing yeah, career. Yeah, she's on
5: the third one right now. She's
3: on the third one. Well, she was <laughs> on the next chapter uh, during this summer to talk about her latest novel, Meet Me at the Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk about every summer after. Can you yeah. give us the elevator pitch of what happens in this book?
5: Yeah, so I don't want to give too much away for anybody. I won't do any um, spoilers, but basically it follows the protagonist, uh, Persephone, uh, who everyone kind of knows as Percy and it's a coming of age novel and it follows her through i would say her teenage years up until i think she's maybe mid 20s when we head into the present day and it kind of it follows her her journey into womanhood kind of punctuated by different moments different summers that she spends at her family cottage where she meets, I'll, I'll kind of spoil it a little bit, the love interest that follows her throughout the book mm. and, and their journey. And it kind of goes in between the present day and, along with a lot of flashbacks that really help to fill out the story of, of growth and love and betrayal mm. and a lot of tough topics.
3: You mentioned this, the story moves back and forth in time and back and forth in location. It's mm-hmm. Toronto and then cottage country. What did yeah. you think of the settings there?
5: I, You know, one, one thing I appreciated was I read a lot of books and it's not often that I, you know, can relate to what they're, the location so specifically. And it's certain things just like when she mentions, you know, eating pizza pizza or when she mentions somebody who works in finance and they work on Bay Street or when she says her and her friend are going to the mall and you know like well they're either at Eaton's or Yorkdale like it's mm. things that I can mm. so specifically relate to and then on the other hand there is cottage country in Barry's Bay which I have no uh, you know relation to at all and it's very outside of my world and so it's like it's it's interesting to dive in between some a world that I know really intimately and a world that I know not at all.
3: Can you tell me what kind of transformation again without you know give up as only as much <laughs> as you feel like giving up here but mm. what kind of transformation or growing up does the uh the young woman in this novel go through Persephone?
5: Um okay. I think I think there's a there's definitely going through adolescence, which is where the furthest back we go with her. I think it's about like uh 13. Um, there's just a there's a lot of transformations. I think that there's there's love and understanding, like having an understanding of love from you know, from the age of thirteen where you have no concept of it and it's really just like, I like you, let's be friends until and and then to her later teen years when that definition changes and expands and then to adulthood when again that definition evolves and becomes more complicated and messy and and also transformations with friends. Like she goes through a lot of personal um kind of metamorphosis with with her friend group and her relation to them and and how she feels about that and and even how they navigate that from the friend's perspective it's so she's going through a lot of different growth experiences
3: All right so tell us what is next on the list
5: Next we have No Disrespect by Sister Solja
3: And this is a memoir yes. from the mid 90s how did yes. you how, how did you come across this book
5: So I grew up in Detroit And um, and I grew up in a really multiracial, but I would say a lot of definitely around a lot of like African-Americans. And I think that there's a lot of um, the urban literature genre is a lot more known there than I would say in Canada. And a lot of people discover Sister Soldier through her, I would say, definitely most known and iconic book, The Coldest Winter Ever. So I remember reading that book and it was so raw and gritty. And, and it's just a classic for a lot of reasons. And for me, I didn't want to let my curiosity end there. So I was like, again, I'm like, well, what else is in your repertoire? And I, when I moved to Canada, I did a lot of reading because I didn't know anyone and I didn't know anything. And I was kind of like by myself a lot. So I got into reading and that's when I revisited, you know, what was in her catalog. I came across no disrespect. And to this day... It is the only book that I have read twice. I've I've never read a book twice. Actually, I've read it three times at this point. <laughs> hmm. So that's I've never read a book more than more than once. So that definitely said something about that book.
3: You mentioned this book is a classic, and and you seem to suggest Sister Soldier also sort of in semi legendary status. I uh, would say uh, yeah. yeah. I would definitely what say about that. About her life uh, stands out for you.
5: I I think I think what makes her an interesting figure is that she has such a strong perspective. Um, She, and even if, like, you can read No Disrespect Now, and obviously it's nearly 30 years old at this point, so not everything is going to feel exactly, you know, like it, you know, aged pristinely, but even the things that you disagree with or that you feel like, hmm, I don't know if that, if that still stands in society, if we still feel that way, it gives an opportunity for for dialogue and for you to explore like why do you do I think she feels that way or what is the how do I feel about that like she's just such a good catalyst for dialogue her and her work is the same way
3: All right tell us about the uh, the final book that you wanted to talk about today
5: So the last book is Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie
3: Shimamande Adichie is a very influential writer. She's Nigerian, lives mm-hmm. in America as well. Mm-hmm. What are the themes and i i and ideas that she touches on in Americana?
5: She touches on a plethora of themes. She touches on, um, I think, what they what all the books have in common is coming of age stories that have you know central figures dealing with you know love, and so she falls into that as well. But in addition, it is it is political. It deals with race. It deals with colorism in a little bit. It deals with the it deals with the illusion of the American dream, and it also deals with you know the reality of the immigrant experience. It deals with interracial relationships as well as relationships between Africans and African Americans and the tension that exists between them. Um, it's so many topics. Feminism. It's there's a lot. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about Carly Fortune's book, uh, Every Summer After, you were talking Mm -hmm. about the things you can relate to and the things that you were, um, you know, happy to discover uh, newly. Mm -hmm. On that note, you have a Nigerian background on your father's side. Yes. Uh, How did the Nigerian aspects of this book resonate with you?
5: I mean, I think definitely just on, on the surface level of being able to read literature where, the names I recognize and they, and the name, like I can just on a little, on a, even on a shallow cultural level, I can relate in a different way, things that they're talking about. But then also I think what differentiates me is that I didn't grow up in Nigeria, so I couldn't necessarily relate to Ife and her, you know, experiences having Nigeria as home. But what I'd related to her about a lot was her immigration experience of how when she did leave Nigeria and she moved to the U S and that, you know, and even with myself, I lived in the U S and then also living in moving and immigrating to Canada. So I have like two immigration stories in two different kind of lives. And I could relate. I found myself relating a lot in just some of the themes that she felt in terms of like feeling othered, not feelings of struggling to feel belonging, um, feeling torn between multiple worlds often and that's something that you can tell that she grapples with and and I could really relate to that
3: Mm. all three of these books feature young women at the center Mm -hmm. how do you see the connective tissue between these three
5: I think that the connective tissue is obviously beyond them being women coming of age is that I think they all have challenges like you know you have somebody like sister soldier who. I would say she has probably the most challenges. Even Efe comes from a middle-class background. But Sister Soldier is coming from, like, the Bronx. She has struggled left and right. And then on the other side of that, we have Percy, who is the only child of two professors. You know, she doesn't face, you know, too much external challenges, but she still has personal challenges. She still goes through things. She still experiences heartbreak, just like Sister Soldier, just like Ife. They all... They're coming from such different worlds and such different vantage points, but but no one really, at least they personally, do not feel like they have it easy. Even if we might look at them and, and make different, draw different conclusions, all of them are struggling with with real problems that we all deal with as humans, as people.
3: Marianne, just before we go, I'm going to I'm going to pull back the curtain for our listeners here mm. and tell people that you've come here, and talked so in depth about three books not a note in sight you didn't have to glance at a paper or your phone very very impressive i am uh,
5: wow thank you yeah no
3: i'm looking forward to talking to you again sometime oh
5: please yes thank you that would be amazing marion enjo
3: is a stylist a model and a photographer and designer the books she was talking about today are on our website cbc.ca slash the next chapter that is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. My thanks this week to Ashley July and Juliana Romanek and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, Ryan B. Patrick returns to give us his rundown on the five books in contention for the 2023 Scotiabank Killer Prize. And a feminist crusader and an aspiring screenwriter connect across the decades in Karma Brown's new book, What Wild Women Do. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter.